1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi,
0: I'm Damon Fairless. On August 11th, 1973, a girl named Cindy Campbell hosted a birthday party in the rec room of 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, an apartment building in the Bronx. The entertainment for that party was her brother, Clive, better known as DJ Cool Herc. And I told him, I said, I'm going to try something new tonight. I'm going to call it America round. He was working the turntables, using this new technique he had perfected, where he'd switch back and forth between two copies of the same record, using two turntables. And as the story goes, hip-hop was born. Bongo rock was still, no, no, no vocals in it, and I was going to Baby Huey, you know, the Mexican. think we got some hit, you know, cause people was like, oh, whoa. Everybody was like, yeah, 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 I'm feeling this. Oh, yeah, 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 you know. Now, a genre of music isn't built in a day, but that party where Cool Herc played, think of it as the launch pad where something incredible took off. And it's the reason why hip-hop celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. What started out in the South Bronx became a best-selling, record-breaking, globally influential art form And along the way, it was scrutinized and debated. It challenged people's ideas of the Black experience. And it also shaped politics and pop culture. A Florida jury says the rap group Two Live Crew can't be as nasty as they want to be if they want their records sold in stores. Gangster rap has become incredibly popular and profitable by selling lyrics about black-on-black violence to a young mainstream audience. They are selling explicit sex and violence to younger and younger kids, and they don't seem to to care about any scars. They leave, they take the money, and they run. So, today we're going to talk about a few of the defining moments in the genre's 50 years with rapper, broadcaster, and hip hop scholar Shadrach Kabango. You might know him as Shad. Shad hosted the award winning documentary series Hip Hop Evolution. Hey, Shad, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I brought up that uh, story of hip-hop's kind of origin story in the intro, so to speak, because as you explained in your series, that party at 1520 Cedric Avenue kind of gives us the context that helps us understand what hip-hop is all about. So I think it makes sense for us to start there too. So maybe you can t- help me understand w- what life was like in the South Bronx at the time, and, and I guess even more specifically, what was the music culture like?
1: Yeah, so the South Bronx at that time was the poorest uh, neighborhood not just in New York City but in all of New York State. So you're talking about you know devastation burnt out buildings is is very famously a, a characteristic of that neighborhood at that time um, because the, the the buildings and the land was so uh, sort of depressed in terms of value that landlords would just burn down the entire building um, to get the insurance
0: money. The fire statistics for New York are staggering. New York has more fires than Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles and Philadelphia put together. And the busiest district is the South Bronx, where last year the men from Battalion 27 responded to more than 10,000 calls. On average, that's one every 45 minutes, night and day,
1: every day of the year. The city of New York was very poor at that time. So there was a lot of um, underfunding of schools, of after-school programs, of music programs, um, which is important as it relates to the invention of hip-hop because, as you said in the intro, this innovative way of using turntables, this was born out of kids not having access to to instruments, to other Mm -hmm. instruments, and turning the turntable that was invented just to be a means of playing recorded music into effectively an instrument.
0: So, so let's go into the, the, the use of the turntable as an instrument, as, as you point out. Can you give me a sense of how it was being used in that context?
1: DJ Cool Herc and these really, these kids, they were 14, 15, 16, they discovered that there were particular sections on these songs that the dancers liked to dance to, uh, what they called breaks. So, instrumental breaks, little, little eight bar, 16 bar musical sections. And so they were trying to figure out a way to repeat those musical sections. And so Cool DJ Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, famously, um, just after him, came up with these innovative ways of looping these sections of the records that the dancers uh, like to dance to that they call breaks, which is why they're called break dancers. And uh, they figured out how to loop it uh, seamlessly using two turntables. I go by the name of the Grand Master Flash from Grand Master Flash in the Furious Five, and the first phase of the break mixing, I will show you, it's called the punch phase, where I will take the foot from the four bars of Billie Jean and just fake it in, as such. And at this moment, I will proceed to warm up till I get things going. And that became a method, so that was applied to the live environment, but that's also what we hear when we hear rap music, right, is these sections of music being looped. So that was all born from these techniques that Cool Herc and and others innovated on the turntables in the 70s in the Bronx.
0: So it's interesting, because like you, you said, these are really young people, like these are kids, and the music that they're pulling those breaks from, can we talk about that? Because like at the time, disco was the thing, right? That was the dance music of the era, that was the new york city mainstream music vibe and this is coming out of that is this other little tiny 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 subculture at the time so tell me a bit more about the musical and environment at the time
1: yeah so that's another really important contribution of hip-hop is that hip-hop is fundamentally genre agnostic the djs played whatever made the people dance so disco was the music of the day, and you would hear some disco at these hip-hop parties, but you would also hear funk. Down, down, whole... You would also hear soul. You would also hear rock breaks if if they had, you know, some funk to them, some swing to them. You would hear Aerosmith, you would hear uh, Billy Squire, whoever it was. Right, uh, Tom Tom Club, an offshoot of the Talking Heads.
0: My boy,
1: my you would hear a lot of Latin influence in in the records. So there's, uh, for example, Incredible Bongo Band. So it's really this melting pot musical culture, Um, a bit of a response to disco because disco was um, well that was for the adults. You, the kids in the Bronx couldn't get into the disco parties. You had to be dressed up. You had to have money. Um, So there were some, there was some disco played at the hip hop parties because that was the music of the day. But it was much more of a melting pot that reflected that culture in the Bronx and, and and really shaped hip hop as this. Genreless musical form.
0: Okay, so th- these hip hop parties, these early you know pregenitors to hip hop parties are, are going on, and then like another six years before the first hip hop song, as we think of it today, is recorded. So in, in 1979, that's Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. It comes out, and it's 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 huge, right? It, it's also 15 minutes long. It's huge in time too. Uh, so, so what did what did that do for hip hop as an art form?
1: Yeah, Rapper's Delight is a really interesting moment in the history of hip hop. So that's at the end of the 70s. Hip hop had been incubating in New York in that area uh, and and other similar areas, including Toronto, actually, um, in the in the 70s. Then you have Rapper's Delight that sells. I'm not sure exactly how many copies, but I, I want to say at least a dozen million copies, this this rap single. Why is it 15 minutes long? Because people had no sense of how to capture what rap was in a recording. It was party music. It was something that you did for 15, 30 minutes, an hour, you know, a guy would get on the mic while a DJ like Cool Herc is, is playing records. So it is hilariously 15 minutes long, but it spread hip hop far, far and wide.
0: I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but just touching on kind of another aspect of the, of the culture that's developing these early hip hop performers, they looked, they didn't look anything like what we consider hip hop now. And, and, and it was pretty wild. Like it was this kind of interesting mix of like, I don't know, punk, glam rock, and then things changed. So, so let's talk about who it was who really first kind of solidified that look that we still associate with hip hop run
1: DMC. When they came on the scene in the early eighties and mid eighties were the first to dress in what we would consider maybe classic hip hop fashion. Mm. They got the street shoes on. They have Adidas Adidas. on. They have Kangol hats on. They have leather you know, leather bomber jackets on. Fresh, you like to have your fresh sneakers on. So I just leave, we just leave our old ones in the store. Fresh out the box. The new ones on and walk right out the store. That's why King of Rock, we always say, going on the tape, we fresh out the box. And what they were doing is just dressing like themselves, dressing like kids in their neighborhood. But that was such an innovation at that time because it was strange to just dress like yourself on a stage you, you you're supposed to dress like a star like you said glam rock and and all these things you're supposed to elevate the presentation and and run dmc really changed the game and gave hip-hop its own aesthetic in terms of fashion by just dressing like people dressed on the street
0: and just the, i'm just thinking like the maya you know video like that It was a big moment right
1: Huge moment, and you think about the excitement of communities seeing somebody really dressing like they do on a huge stage on a platform like MTV or or, or big big stadiums uh, around America.
0: Part of that era, and then moving beyond it, we've we've got Run DMC in the late '80s, and then. Moving into the, the early 90s, the genre is starting to flourish, right? And people are are starting to really pick this up and, and develop it. So you've got Run DMC, Public Enemy, NWA, Beastie Boys, Rakeem, and you know, the list goes on. Nas, we keep moving on. But what stands out about that particular era? I, I, I can't remember what you call it in the series, but you've kind of got this foundational era, this classic era. What stands out to you?
1: That's right. So we call that the golden era in hip-hop. So from the mid-80s into the into the early 90s, Run DMC, they're the first hip-hop, old-school superstars. Then, then you have mid-80s into the early 90s, the golden era, and it's called that because it seemed like every act that came out was an innovation. <clears throat> like every act that came out was completely transforming the genre. So you have acts from uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Telling funny stories and having these really sharp MC DJ routines to Public Enemy coming on the scene with literally an army behind them in terms of how they presented themselves in fatigues, yeah. and in in the fatigues and and the mix of Chuck D's consciousness and Flavor Flav as the comedic foil with also a lot of consciousness as well you have people like Queen Latifa mm-hmm. um bringing this this consciousness this female energy to to hip-hop as well in a powerful way Then you have artists like Rakim, and Rakim is, is like this B.C.A.D. moment in terms of lyricism.
0: Queens Queens and, to and, down, island, my-
1: and actually, when we interviewed Run DMC for Hip Hop Evolution, I asked uh, uh, DMC, Daryl McDaniels, who's from the old school. I said, when you heard Rakim for the first time, what did you think? And he said, "Oh, I knew we were done." Like that's how much of a shift each of these artists was bringing to hip hop. So that was really a, a a time of of flourishing and excitement around the around the music, a lot of creativity.
0: And you talk you talk about almost like these quantum leaps between artists, but but then you also see that kind of amplified on a grander scale when you look at like this this tiny little thing that that sprouted in the Bronx and it spreads locally, but then also across the country on the West coast and later, you know, in the South you, you get this development, this like massive bounds of development from, from region to region too. So, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that part of the evolution.
1: Hip hop is fundamentally New York culture, right? It was born, it was born in the Bronx and we talked a little bit about the cultural influences in terms of the social situation there, in terms of the musical culture in that place. And, and it is very similar to other cities like Philadelphia, like Toronto at that time. So they were all kind of developing this thing we call hip-hop. Um, but then as that music was exported to some further regions, it starts to mingle with the local influences in re- some really interesting ways. So, you know, one example that really stands out for me is is Los Angeles. We take for granted that there's hip hop in L.A., but when that started to emerge and really take over hip hop, that was that was huge because hip hop was New York culture. Um, the experiences and the stories that were being told in L.A. hip hop were were shocking. You know, talk. You think about Ice T, Boys in the Hood. It's considered one of the first gangster rap records, and then N.W.A. after them, and the kind of stories that they were telling that was reflecting uniquely L.A. gang life.
0: Just as I thought the fools kept stepping. Jumped in the foe, hit the juice on my ride. I got front
1: and back. And it was, it was shocking to the mainstream. Um, but it was even shocking within hip-hop uh, to some extent. So, you know, that's, that's Los Angeles. Then you have the South. You have Miami. Two Live Crew, uh, one of the first real rap groups from the South to, to emerge. If you've ever been to Miami, that's a totally different culture than New York. That's a party culture, yeah. right? It was just fun, irreverent uh, party music. ¶¶ Hey, it's Jeff Blair. And I'm Kevin Barker. Join us for in-depth coverage on everything surrounding the Toronto Blue Jays and the biggest stories across Major League Baseball with the best guests in the game and, of course, first-class analysis. Ha! That's the smartest thing you've ever said, Jeff. See what I have to put up with? It's Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Let's talk about this shocking nature of, of the develop that, you know, hip hop's developing because it really comes into the mainstream and and it basically, you know, it, it clashes with the mainstream. So as it's growing in influence, the scrutiny on it is also growing, right? And we've got this, this national campaign that starts up in the U S in the mid eighties, targeting this shocking music, so to speak, as you know, labeling it as obscene. And I'm thinking in particular of Tipper Gore, who's the uh, former wife of former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. She was a huge figure in this movement. These companies and some of these artists are engaged in cultural strip mining. They are selling explicit sex and violence to younger and younger kids. And they don't seem to to care about any scars. They leave. They take the money and they run. There are... And even though all genres of music were kind of caught up in, in the lens of that scrutiny, hip-hop was really a main target. So I'm thinking in 1990, we've got Two Life Cruise album "Banned in the USA comes out, and it's the first to get this parental advisory sticker.
1: We're too live, do black, do strong Doing the right thing and not the wrong So listen up, y'all, to what we say We won't be banned in the USA
0: And the album before that as nasty as they want to be you know the cover art is them lying on a beach with like four almost naked you know bikini clad women there as part of this party culture you talk about that album's the subject of a trial can can you kind of walk me through that
1: yeah so again this can be hard to imagine but that uh, album was deemed illegal to sell there was a record store owner that was arrested for selling that, al- selling that album, it was deemed illegal.
0: A Florida jury says the rap group Two Live Crew can't be as nasty as they want to be if they want their records sold in stores. In what's being called a landmark case, the jury convicted a record store owner on obscenity charges for selling a Two Live Crew album, an album banned by a federal judge because of its lyrics. Charles Freeman
1: was... Right, and it took an appeal. It took Henry Louis Gates, the, the famous... Um, Harvard professor testifying to the inspirations to the culture behind that music it, it was it's miami party culture. it's also a culture of uh, of comedy uh black comedy records that were that were going around the south at the time. so it took all of that to even make it legal literally so that that was a, a victory that was won by hip hop for all of
0: music and and we see that. We see the the effect of that still, right? In terms of like like artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Cardi B, you know, artists who are making overt sexuality what what would have been termed then as obscene, part of their their persona, part of their art, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think of Lil Nas X as a recent example as well with his his Montero um, campaign, you know, and there's a lot of controversy around that. That victory to number one has not come without controversy as the video satanic theme and homoerotic displays of affection have caused quite the reaction
0: online and beyond.
1: But we would still never imagine that it would be banned outright. And uh wasn't that long ago that music, uh, hip-hop music, was outright banned. And so that was a, a victory that had to be uh, fought and won.
0: Okay, j- just kind of switching tack a little bit, Let- let's also talk about the money because hip hop becomes incredibly lucrative over time and you can see that like physically with the jewelry you know artists wear bling is now a term everyone uses yeah, so how did money affect the evolution of the genre
1: yeah in 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 so many ways so hip hop was always culture you know initially mm-hmm. and what artists aspired to be because there wasn't a big industry was just the best Hmm. the best, the most innovative, the most creative. And that's why we had that golden era of hip hop that we were talking about earlier with all these stylistic innovations, because there wasn't much of an industry around the music. When there was getting into the 90s, this is becoming a very popular musical form, eventually the most popular musical form. It did shape the music. People had more commercial Hmm. considerations and it became less of a culture and more of an industry. And by By that, what I mean is the aspects of the culture that were less lucrative started to fall to the wayside or started to become marginalized, started to become more kind of fringe and less central. So you started to hear less consciousness in the mainstream Mm -hmm. music. And what you heard a lot more of in the mainstream was kind of more pop sounding, uh, whatever was selling. I mean, that's the logic of industry is whatever is selling you create and sell more of that and whatever's not selling as much kind of gets bumped to the margins. Uh, but in terms of culture, some of that stuff in the margins is, is really important to kind of the totality of it, to the actual culture of the thing.
0: I kind of want to zoom out for a second and look look more broadly at the, the music industry. So in 2004, rock and roll turns 50. And the music industry then was in a really different spot back in the two thousand, like early 2000s. So this is before streaming. A lot of things have changed. So maybe for, as kind of the first line of thought here, maybe we can talk about what the industry conditions were like for rock and roll back then when it turns 50. What, what was the industry like?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting comparison to make. So 2004, I would say in terms of rock music, just before that, there was quite a bit of anxiety about whether or not this is the end of rock music. So Radiohead had put out OK Computer and Kid A, and it seemed to signal that rock music was maybe done. Um, But then you have this explosion that happened with The Strokes and some other bands, trying to think, The White Stripes and and, and artists like that, bringing some more energy back into the genre. Also, in terms of the industry, this was just post-Napster, so... Downloading has really disrupted the traditional music industry. Napster is enabling millions of people to get
0: free music with just a few keystrokes at their computers. The idea is deceptively simple. It's called file sharing.
1: And so you have this independent movement of music that's starting to develop around that time, too, that's also bringing a lot of energy. The other thing I think in terms of comparison, by that point, in the history of rock music rock had subdivided into all of these different interesting subgenres right you had punk rock you have heavy metal people were talking a lot about indie rock at that time hip hop by comparison i think is still sort of talked about as this one uniform thing mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same i guess system of subgenres or or way that we conceptualize it even though the music really has evolved <clears> in that way if you think about an artist like Kendrick Lamar and what he's doing creatively and conceptually versus uh a new younger artist like Yeet for example like you can hardly compare the two what their what their creative sort of aspirations are, are so different and yet we still talk about them like under this uh, one umbrella of hip hop as if they have the same creative goals you know so so that's a that's a big difference um, to me that I think is not good for hip hop. I think we really need to start to think about hip hop. We need to have the the proper respect for hip hop, like we do for rock music, in order to think about artists differently, think about um, uh, these subgenres a little bit differently, and then the industry is in a very different place, right? Two thousand and four, mm-hmm. as you said, there was no streaming and now we're we're fully in the streaming era we've been there for about a decade mm-hmm. and and hip hop has proven to be really popular uh on streaming so yeah it, it it's interesting to to look at the two uh you know very important genres um in popular music and and where they were at at fifty years in
0: and i i i guess just a little further like on those differences w- and I guess I'm asking you to speculate or prognosticate in an impossible way, but, but I'm curious about the longevity. Like what do these differences mean for hip hop going forward? Do you think?
1: Well, streaming definitely is going to help the longevity of any genre, right? Because stuff can literally live. uh, I mean, at least right now we're imagining that it, it will live forever on streaming these different songs. Right. Um, it does some interesting things to the history uh, and the way that history is kind of archived. So, the example that's coming to mind is De La Soul, who this year just finally got their music. This is a very important uh, art, uh, act in terms of hip hop, but their music wasn't on streaming mm. because of some complicated legal issues. Their music wasn't on streaming until this year. So, you know, what that does in terms of preserving the history properly, uh, sort of archiving, streaming presents some potential challenges. Um, the other thing I think of in terms of longevity so 50 years of rock and roll well when rock and roll started I don't think people were really talking in terms of oh this music is just going to be a fad it's not going to be around but that really was the conversation with hip hop for mm-hmm. 10, 20 years maybe um, into hip hop and so for hip hop to reach 50 years to me feels like a greater milestone because of how much it was um, debated and dismissed for probably about half of its existence Um, it makes 50 years feel like um, that much more significant of a of a milestone and then um, as i was sort of saying as well you know 2004 a couple years prior they thought rock and roll was maybe dead and hip-hop seems to be uh, thriving as much as ever um 50 years in so that's another to me, interesting point of comparison.
0: Just before, you know, we part ways here, you know, as an artist, you've talked to some incredible people. Is there a moment in these 50 years of hip hop that, that kind of left a big impact on you personally?
1: Well, one thing I was struck by working on, on the series, um, was really how young artists are in hip hop and what they're able to do at such a young age. I'm thinking of grandmaster flash all the way at the origins so at 13 14 years old he was uh grabbing his parents tools and going inside of mixers and turntables to see how they work to actually change how they work in order to make this equipment do what he wanted it to do you know he was 13 14 years old he was uh cutting slip mats out of felt there weren't slip mats for turntables that's something that you put on top of the platter between the record and the and the platter he was cutting that out of felt uh on on the floor in his in his parents apartment because he had figured out that that material is is the right material to allow the record to spin but allow him to manipulate the record with his hand without damaging the record Hmm. um so all these innovations coming from kids i think about tupac uh who died uh i want to say in his mid-20s 24, and 25, right? the kind of music that he was making, how prolific he was, the kind of consciousness that he brought at such a young age—you know what what would he have been doing uh, now if if he was still alive? So um, that's one thing that has that has stayed with me, kind of you know throughout my life as a, as a fan and and as someone that makes hip hop, but also working on these on this series, it it was just reinforced for me how amazing young creativity is in this form
0: i can't think of a better spot to end it than that that's great shad thanks so much for coming on
1: yeah no problem yeah thanks appreciate it
0: that's all for today you can find shad's series hip-hop evolution on netflix Front Burner was produced this week by Rafferty Baker, Lauren Donnelly, Shannon Higgins, Joyta Shingupta, Matt Muse, and Derek Vanderwijk. Sound design was by Mackenzie Cameron and Sam McNulty. Music by Joseph Shabison. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. Our executive producer is Nick McCabe-Locos, and I'm Damon Fairless. Thanks for listening. We're taking a break early next week. We'll be back on Wednesday. So, from all of us here at Front Burner, have a great holiday.